These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. 1.2 million years ago, a human dropped a stone tool in the Gadiz River and didn't feel like picking it up. This is the beginning of our understanding of human settlement in the region called Anatolia today. Today, Anatolia is dry, rugged, and mountainous, and a few thousand years ago, it was quite similar, but not quite as dry and a bit more hospitable for agriculture and wild game. The rectangular outcropping between the Mediterranean, Aegean, and Black Seas, Anatolia is the geographical location of most of modern Turkey, though, as we'll see, the Turks are only the most recent of many to occupy this land. From scattered stone tools, we can say for certain that some sort of humans have been walking on this peninsula for at least a million years, though given the inhospitability of the climate, they may have only been passing through, or at best, cover the land only at very low density. Even before the invention of pottery, the first traces of what we can call native Anatolians appear, though some think that they, too, were migrants from elsewhere. A few curious sites, most famously at the temple at Gobekli Tepe, start cropping up around this time, lending support to the idea that settled society in the Near East began as temple structures serving a mobile population, with cities eventually growing up around these temples. Some of these sites are dated from anywhere between 12,000 to 6,000 BCE, making them older than the oldest cities of Mesopotamia, though most of them were abandoned without becoming fully-fledged cities. By around 6,000 BCE, the first of many, many documented invasions passes through, though we know nothing of who was replaced and who replaced them except for differences in their pottery styles. For the next 3,000 years, as the Stone Age gives way to the Copper Age, Anatolia begins to develop two different focuses. The West begins to develop trade and cultural linkages with the Aegean, Greek, and Balkan peoples, while the East looks into Syria and Mesopotamia. Anatolia may have been agriculturally poor, but as the Copper Age began in the Near East, it was quickly discovered that it was minerally very rich. There was not yet enough civilization for great fortunes to be made running long-distance caravans, but just by the process of one community trading with its neighbors, metals and the skills to work them migrated out of Anatolia. It's around 3200 BCE that some enterprising Anatolian discovers that you can add tin to copper to make a much more durable material. But though we call this the Bronze Age, it's easy to overstate just how important this one technology was. At least as important, if not more so, were new agricultural models and the substantial increase in population densities they allowed. Soon enough, as Anatolia sends its metals to ever more distant places, it is receiving in turn a new cultural and economic system, one that includes larger cities, dedicated craftsmen, and cuneiform writing. By 2700, we get our first confirmation in writing of long-distance trade caravans traveling between Sumer and Anatolia, and right around 2000 BCE, our window on who the Anatolians actually are finally opens. 
The very first thing we notice in Anatolia is that the economic foundations of society are radically different from what we find in Mesopotamia or even in Egypt. In this land, the winters are harsh, the summers are hot and dry, the soil is mountainous and rocky, the rivers are small, and both temperatures and rainfall are highly uncertain each year. Irrigation in the Mesopotamian style is basically impossible, and land flat enough to farm is hard to come by. Civilization in Anatolia will never be characterized by the huge fields of barley we think of in the Mesopotamian context. Rather, farmers live on small plots, and rather than focusing purely on yield, are forced to emphasize a diverse planting portfolio to ensure against crop failure. Individual plots could be as small as 600 square meters, though most were a bit larger. But even within that, you could expect to find a variety of grains, fruits, and vegetables growing. Multiple strains of wheat and barley, each doing well in somewhat different conditions, grew, as well as a variety of legumes, root vegetables, and herbs. Fruit trees could be planted either in orchards or in small areas of good soil, producing olives, figs, apples, pears, apricots, pomegranates, and plums. And all this could be supplemented with grape vineyards, apiaries for honey, and a small herd of livestock for meat, dairy, and wool. There was no strong division between farmers and herdsmen, since even herdsmen would supplement their income with a garden, and even farmers would usually try and have at least a small herd. And through the course of a lifetime, the same individual could go from mostly one to mostly the other, or even just balance the two more or less evenly without causing the slightest bit of comment. The end result is that agriculture in Anatolia produced much less overall, and was able to support far fewer people than the fertile lands of Mesopotamia. But the people of Mesopotamia, and especially the poor, lived almost exclusively on barley, eating it for bread and drinking it for beer, while even a poor Anatolian would have enjoyed a far more varied diet, assuming the weather cooperated and allowed him to eat it all. Harsher conditions and richer diet made those Anatolians who were lucky and rich enough to be insulated from the vagaries of climate much healthier and sturdier than most people of the Bronze Age. We get a picture of smaller and far less involved governments in Anatolia, largely as a direct response to this smaller and more self-sufficient agriculture. With no large-scale irrigation projects, it seems that there was no corresponding growth in government like we see in Mesopotamia, and the broken, mountainous terrain makes it relatively more difficult to build and manage a kingdom too far outside of your local valley. In general, it seems that communities of around a thousand people coalesced in the early days, with disputes resolved by a council of notable citizens, not so much a government as the representatives of the community in general. For most people, their sense of tribal or ethnic identity likely extended no further than this community, possibly including a handful of the closest such communities as well in the denser areas. Of course, by the time of the Bronze Age, a handful of these communities gain enough wealth to expand into fully-fledged cities, some as big as a mile in diameter. 
But just as how the tribal settlements were generally isolated, these cities, too, were mostly city-states, with very little control over the surrounding countryside. Conflict did occur between cities, but with abundant stone and rocky terrain, it was much easier to defend a walled compound in this time than it was to attack it. And though stone walls may have required much more initial investment than the mud brick walls of Mesopotamia, it also required far, far less maintenance and was much more difficult to damage with the weapons and tactics of the early Bronze Age. When the Assyrian traders start to arrive in force around 2000 BCE, they're dealing primarily with four groups of people, Hattians, Hurrians, Luwians, and Hittites. These were far from the only groups, just the largest and most significant for our story, and they shouldn't be taken as monolithic blocks either. A person was from whatever tribe or village he was born in, and the fact that he may have spoken a Luwian dialect, like many other villages, was fairly inconsequential. And anyway, his village's dialect would have diverged from all the others, making his type of Luwian distinct and necessarily better than all the others. Of the four groups, the Hattians and Hurrians had been there the longest, with the Hattians living mostly on the high central plateau and the Hurrians extending way far eastward, not generally considered an Anatolian people even though they had a large presence here. Compared to these, the Luwians and Hittites were relative newcomers, possibly only just arriving as the Assyrians were setting up their posts. These two are both Indo-Europeans, and getting into the weeds as to their precise origins quickly gets into thorny political and racist territory. So suffice it to say that they came from somewhere, maybe north or east of Mesopotamia, and had migrated possibly in response to the climate shift of 2200 BCE the same disaster that had brought the Gutians down to destroy Akkad and later contributed to the rise of the Amorites in the Syrian desert. The Luwians settled to the west and south of Anatolia, and there honestly isn't much I can say about them specifically. Luwian individuals and countries will be popping up in our narrative from time to time, and many will be fully integrated into the later Hittite Empire. But for the most part, they're just one more group among many, with very little recorded about them as a whole. The Hittites, however, though only a small and disunified ethnicity at the moment, will, of course, come to be the stars of our show soon enough. Of course, they're no more unified than any other regional ethnic grouping at the moment, and it is in fact an open question whether they would have recognized themselves as any sort of group at all, since it will really just be one Hittite kingdom that comes to rule over eastern Anatolia. But soon enough, that kingdom will come to stand in for all Hittites everywhere. The Hittite language did not call itself Hittite, Rather, they consider themselves to be speaking Nesha, or Nessite, the language of the city of Kanesh, which coincidentally is where our history, properly speaking, begins. With the coming of 2000 BCE, our story can change from one of archaeology to one more properly of history. 
The first cities have been established by this time around Anatolia, including the famous city of Troy or Ilium on the coast facing Greece, the venerable Tarsus on the beautiful southern coast, and the two cities most important for our story, Hattus in east-central Anatolia and Kinesh, rather a bit southeast of that. Kinesh has been uniquely important in history as a major crossroads between Mesopotamian and Anatolian civilization. Our first mention of the city goes back to the Akkadian Empire, as this was the furthest to the northwest that history's first empire ever managed to reach. And a king of Kinesh named Zipani is mentioned as part of a rebellion against Naram-Sin. By the time of the Assyrian traders, it would come to be the most important and most well-documented of the Karam merchant colonies. It's likely through this city and the other Karams that the first cuneiform writing systems were introduced into Anatolia, using the simplified 200-300 character set used by the Assyrians, rather than the more complicated Sumero-Akkadian cuneiform popular in southern Mesopotamia. This new writing system would be adapted most prominently by one of the first major kingdoms to emerge in this era, a bit north and west of Kinesh, the kingdom of the Hattians, centered around Hattush, also called Hattusa. I say major kingdom because it was certainly important in Anatolian affairs, but it was likely fairly limited in territorial extent, not reaching at this point too terribly far from its home city. Like Kanesh, a quarter of Hattusa was set aside for the Assyrian merchants, who would arrive exhausted from their six-week journey probably twice a year, once early in springtime and once near the end of summer, with many of them spending a great deal of time within the colony selling wares from distant Mesopotamia, such as high-quality textiles and grain, or collecting goods like copper, silver, and gold for the return trip. Though the Assyrians in their colonies are the most well-documented parts of these cities, they were only one part of a larger city that had the full range of economic activity. Trade had always occurred between Anatolian cities, but following the example of the Assyrian merchants with their new writing and mercantile techniques, local merchants began to partner with Assyrians to open up trade routes that cycled through the entire peninsula, moving metals, cloth, and foodstuffs throughout the region. The latter, though likely the least profitable, was a major improvement in Anatolian lifestyle, since for the first time a valley hit by drought, frost, or otherwise poor harvests could give their savings to a food merchant and ward off starvation for a time, assuming it was a local catastrophe and not a region-wide one. In later times, the importation of food from further away, Egypt and Mesopotamia, will become increasingly frequent as Anatolia and the Hittite Empire prospers in excess of its ability to feed the people. We've looked quite extensively at the Assyrian merchants back in the episode Merchants and Households of Assyria, but there's very little else to say at this early date about the Anatolians themselves. By the 1900s and 1800s, economic prosperity and the innovations of the Assyrians are causing unprecedented growth in the cities, and these began to form properly into a patchwork of tiny kingdoms across Anatolia. 
These kingdoms did what kingdoms do. They engaged in diplomacy, and when diplomacy broke down, they fought. Still, in the early period, growth seems to have been universal, and conflict was very minimal. It wasn't until around 1800 that the growing borders of these new states would start to press up against each other. As these little kingdoms asserted their control more firmly on the land around them, they soon came to realize that the various merchant caravans which had once passed freely through the land that was now theirs were extremely wealthy. And so each tiny city-state began to set up tariffs on the merchants that passed through the town. Each town was constrained in what they could take, since they don't want to scare off the merchants entirely, but passing through a dozen such towns, the accumulated tolls could easily take a toll on the merchants' profits. And so, the merchants responded to this with increasingly clever methods of tax evasion. The simplest was to simply avoid a city or a specific toll stations altogether, preferring smaller roads. These, however, could easily become bandit-infested, and when the narrow roads were too hazardous, we have accounts of very clever smuggling schemes, such as one merchant who ordered all his men to conceal their tin in their underwear, one pound of tin per groin, and to walk through the city as though they were individual travelers, rather than a merchant convoy. Of course, the penalties for smuggling and tax evasion, should they be discovered, could mean the loss of the entire caravan, and even imprisonment for the merchant. This could well be worth it for some of the rarest and most precious metals, such as tin and the very earliest discoveries of meteoric iron. But for most merchants, the tariffs, bribes, and other expenses were just written off as the cost of doing business. The merchants did quite well for themselves even as tolls rose in this period. Of course, the tolls didn't just enrich the palaces of these small kingdoms. The local lords were sufficiently aware of the benefits of these traders that they devoted at least some of that tax revenue to keeping the main roads clear of that other scourge of merchants everywhere, the bandits. Soon enough, bandit extermination became, on one hand, a point of local pride, with kings sending messages to the merchants that their roads were more clear than roads elsewhere, and, on the other hand, a motive for international cooperation, since each king would urge his neighbors to be at least as vigilant as himself to keep the bandits from simply crossing a border and being safe. It was the regular travel of the merchants themselves that allowed this increased diplomatic activity, both with the king's neighbors and with more distant kingdoms. However, it was these very successes that laid the groundwork for increased conflict among the kings. Competition for land and trade fed off the naked ambition of each king, and their increased diplomatic correspondence gave each kingdom a sense of their own particular identity in relation to a larger patchwork of communities. After all, when your whole world is your one valley, you don't worry too much about the next valley over. But when you start to hear about other parts of the world, your identity as a member of this valley grows more defined and more important. Communication, individuation, and increased control over the lands of a kingdom kindled by 1800 the first sparks of widespread warfare in eastern Anatolia, marking the next phase of Anatolian history. 
From the merchant's point of view, we can see this century as one marked by increasing numbers of failed expeditions and expeditions postponed or canceled due to the unsettled conditions. From the Anatolians themselves, we get the first native historical narrative, the Anita inscription. But we're going to save the narrative of Anatolian warfare for next episode. There is, sadly, very little more I can tell you about pre-Hittite Anatolia. Nearly all of what we know comes from a very sparse archaeological record or from the Hittites themselves. Who were the Luwians, the Hattians, the many other people that filled this region, aside from their identities within the later empire? I simply can't tell you. This is a dark age of history. But while we're exploring outside Mesopotamia, there are two more places that play marginal roles in our story that I would like to introduce today. If we hop onto a boat onto the south shore of Anatolia and go south, Odds are, we'll run into a large island, the island of Cyprus, which is by now an integral part of the Near East trading network. The first inhabitants of Cyprus, some 10,000 years ago, were not humans at all. Rather, it seems that in the lower sea levels of the Paleolithic period, elephants and hippopotami were able to swim from the mainland to Cyprus and became stuck there. The smaller environments of the island caused rapid dwarfism, shrinking the elephants by 98%, creating a species of dwarf elephant and pygmy hippos that must have been absolutely adorable. Then around 8000 BCE, the first human inhabitants arrived and ate them all. Such is life. Our story passes quickly through millennium until around 2300 BCE. Now, when I first told this story, I was pretty skeptical about its accuracy, but reading more about it, there might actually be a grain or two of truth here. You see, the story is that when Sargon of Akkad was conquering the entire world, or at least as much of it as he knew about, his armies reached the Mediterranean coast, somewhere around modern Lebanon. Sargon looked out over that ocean and knew he had reached the edge of the earth and sent most of his armies north and south from there on a massive pillaging expedition. But he also selected a certain number of men under a trusted admiral to build a few boats and sail west, just to see what was out there. And a few years later, the story goes, the admiral returned to Mesopotamia with tales of a land full of mineral wealth, good wood, and a people who had nominally submitted to the great king of Sumer and Akkad. Now, at this point, Cyprus wasn't actually integrated in any real way into the Akkadian Empire or the political systems of the Near East. But archaeological records do tell us that the Cypriots made the transition from Stone Age to Bronze Age quite suddenly around 2400 to 2200 BCE, indicating that they were discovered by the mainland around this time. Now, perhaps it was the cities of Phoenicia that had discovered the island and word reached Sargon's ear, or the southern Anatolians. But it's also possible that Sargon's expedition, quite by accident, discovered what would become a fairly significant island for the future of the Near East, and the Phoenician traders and Anatolian settlers merely followed up on his lead. Whatever the case, 
Interactions soon became regular with Anatolia and the Levant, and soon enough, merchants from as far away as Crete, Greece, Egypt, and Mesopotamia were knocking at their door. The people of Cyprus transitioned into the Bronze Age much the same way that the Arabian Peninsula transitioned into the Oil Age, suddenly finding that their backwater possessed a resource in high demand and modernizing rapidly. The Cypriots were sitting on a mountain of easily accessible copper, an industry which has seen the island prosper for the last 4,000 years and remains a going concern. So rich were the copper veins here that the island itself became synonymous with the metal. The Greek word kupros and the Sumerian word gabar were both applied to the island, and it's from the Greeks that we get both copper and Cyprus today. Just as in Anatolia, the increased mercantile activity after the year 2000 BCE saw a commensurate rise in prosperity in the island, and just as in Anatolia, this led to the formation of larger territorial kingdoms. For the first time, forts were constructed on the island, a clear sign of military engagements between kingdoms, and by perhaps around 1700, though it could well have been one or two hundred years later or earlier, such as the poor state of our understanding of the island, that the kingdom of Alashia emerged as the dominant kingdom, owning at least the region around modern Nicosia and playing a noticeable role in international affairs. It isn't certain that they ruled over the entire island, but there are no indications of any smaller kingdoms with the strength to challenge them on Cyprus. This is where we will leave the island for now, under the dominance of Alashia, but engaged in both diplomacy and trade with Egypt, the Levant, Crete, and Anatolia. Cyprus is something of a backwater, if a fairly wealthy one. But if we get back in our boat and head even farther west, we can run into the very last stop in the Middle Bronze Age trading system, a true backwater, the island of Crete. The Stone Age origins of the people of the Aegean are hotly contested, but they may have been pushed westward and out of Anatolia by the successive migrations there, and were not in the Stone Age Greek speakers. Bronze came to the Aegean at around the same time it came to the Near East, but probably due to the lack of trading links and the rough terrain, development lagged a bit behind their eastern cousins. The Aegean peoples traded among themselves frequently, hopping freely between islands, and there was a very long-distance link to Western Europe that brought tin from those distant lands, though this was a diffusive trade, where one tribe would trade to the tribe next to it, not one characterized by long-distance caravans of the sort the Mesopotamians were pioneering. The Aegean was divided among the Mycenaeans, who will eventually become the Greeks and play basically no part in our story, and the Minoans of Crete. While technologically isolated from the civilizations growing in the Near East, the Minoans managed to outdo their Anatolian and Cypriot neighbors in matters of social complexity. For whatever reason, groups of elites emerged on the island fairly early and soon established proper monarchies to rule the numerous tiny Minoan kingdoms. 
With nothing but stone and copper tools, these kings directed the construction of great monuments with all the same self-assuredness as the Egyptian pharaohs building the pyramids. And the most significant of the great palaces they ordered constructed still stands today, at least in part, at the ancient city of Knossos in the north coast of Crete. It was once believed, for some reason, that the Minoans were a purely peaceful people who were totally ignorant of conflict and warfare. More recent scholarship has shown this to be comically false, and the tiny kinglets of Crete fought amongst each other just as often and for much the same reasons as petty kings and tribes anywhere else in the world. Still, the scale of the warfare was fairly small, and overall the island saw a degree of peace and prosperity that by the 1700s BCE allowed them to make their contribution to the Near East trade networks. Mesopotamia had grains, reeds, and pottery, while Anatolia had rich metals. Assyria had textiles, and the eastern Elamites had tin. Cyprus had copper, and the Phoenicians had the position and cleverness to sit at the crossroads of this wealthy and bustling trade route. But the Minoans, it seemed, could not rely solely on natural resources to contribute to the great eastern markets and in turn receive their benefits. And so they instead chose to occupy the very top of the market, buying up raw materials like gold, copper, and bronze, and sending to Canaan and Egypt some of the highest quality craftsmanship in the region. Exquisite jewelry, fine pottery, skillfully carved stonewares, and magnificent frescoes from Crete were the luxury designer goods of the day, occupying the most prized spots and highest profit margins in any bazaar that could supply them. Cretan would come to be an insult, meaning barbarous, but in the Minoan age, civilization flowed outwards to the rest of Greece, from Crete, and the many innovations that flowed along the trade routes. However, the Minoans were pretty well doomed as soon as they set up shop on their islands, and regular disasters such as earthquakes and volcanic eruptions would routinely set their entire society back, until a series of such disasters around 1450 would weaken them irreparably and the weakened Minoan cultures would be picked off and replaced by the rising Mycenaean Greeks. As we move now into the period called the Late Bronze Age, for the first time the entire Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean will come to be consistently and deeply linked, economically and politically. The Egyptians will finally start coming out of their shell and interact with the world around them and the great powers of the Near East will be able to cross from Mesopotamia to Anatolia without too much logistical difficulty. Wars featuring great powers will become increasingly common, and trade networks will grow in volume and complexity. The world of the early Sumerian city-states was a small one, and one could plausibly argue that the main reason Sargon of Akkad could forge an empire all the way to Anatolia is because these lands were, to a certain degree, empty and disorganized. But now the world is starting to look a great deal more like the world we're familiar with with nations that have to consider their neighbors, and countries great and small forging alliances to navigate the hazards of diplomacy. 
The last three episodes have been a bit slow, in all honesty, as we trudge through the Dark Ages. But starting next week, we begin properly the tale of the Hittites and the dawn of the next great era of Mesopotamian history. So join us next week as battle begins with tiny kingdoms fighting each other for tiny reasons until finally a new great power emerges. Thank you for listening.